Volume Two, Chapter Forty Nine of The Marble Faun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Marble Faun by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Volume Two, Chapter Forty Nine, A Frolic of the Carnival. The crowd and confusion, just at that moment, hindered the sculptor from pursuing these figures, the peasant and contadina, who indeed were but two of a numerous tribe that thronged the corso in similar costume. As soon as he could squeeze a passage, Kenyon tried to follow in their footsteps, but quickly lost sight of them, and was thrown off the track by stopping to examine various groups of masqueraders, in which he fancied the objects of his search to be included. He found many a sallow peasant or herdsman of the Campagna, in such a dress as Donatello wore, many a contadina too, brown, broad, and sturdy, in her finery of scarlet, and decked out with gold or coral beads, a pair of heavy earrings, a curiously wrought cameo or mosaic brooch, and a silver comb or long stiletto among her glossy hair but those shapes of grace and beauty which he sought had vanished. As soon as the procession of the senator had passed, the merry-makers resumed their antics with fresh spirit, and the artillery of bouquets and sugar-plums, suspended for a moment, began anew, the sculptor himself being probably the most anxious and unquiet spectator there, was especially a mark for missiles from all quarters and for the practical jokes which the license of the carnival permits. In fact, his sad and contracted brow so ill-accorded with the scene, that the revellers might be pardoned for thus using him as the butt of their idle mirth, since he evidently could not otherwise contribute to it. Fantastic figures with bulbous heads, the circumference of a bushel, grinned enormously in his face harlequins struck him with their wooden swords and appeared to expect his immediate transformation into some jollier shape a little long-tailed horned fiend sidled up to him and suddenly blew at him through a tube enveloping our poor friend in a whole harvest of winged seeds a biped with an ass's snout brayed close to his ear ending his discordant uproar with a peal of human laughter five strapping damsels so at least their petticoats bespoke them in spite of an awful freedom in the flourish of their legs joined hands and danced around him inviting him by their gestures to perform a hornpipe in the midst released from these gay persecutors a clown in motley wrapped him on the back with a blown bladder in which a handful of dried peas rattled horribly unquestionably a care-stricken mortal has no business abroad when the rest of mankind are at high carnival they must either pelt him and absolutely martyr him with jests and finally bury him beneath the aggregate heap or else the potency of his darker mood because the tissue of human life takes a sad dye more readily than a gay one will quell their holiday humours like the aspect of a death's head 
at a banquet. Only that we know Kenyon's errand, we could hardly forgive him for venturing into the Corso with that troubled face. Even yet his merry martyrdom was not half over. There came along a gigantic female figure, seven feet high at least, and taking up a third of the street's breadth with the preposterously swelling swear of her crinoline skirts. Singling out the sculptor, she began to make a ponderous assault upon his heart, throwing amorous glances at him out of her great goggle eyes, offering him a vast bouquet of sunflowers and nettles, and soliciting his pity by all sorts of pathetic and passionate dumb show. Her suit meeting no favor, the rejected Titanus made a gesture of despair and rage. Then, suddenly drawing a huge pistol, she took aim right at the obdurate sculptor's breast and pulled the trigger. The shot took effect, for the abominable plaything went off by a spring, like a boy's pop-gun, covering Kenyon with a cloud of lime-dust, under shelter of which the revengeful damsel strode away. Hereupon a whole host of absurd figures surrounded him, pretending to sympathize in his mishap, clowns and party-colored harlequins, orangutans, bear-headed, bull-headed, and dog-headed individuals, faces that would have been human, but for their enormous noses, one terrific creature, with a visage right in the center of his breast, and all other imaginable kinds of monstrosity and exaggeration. These apparitions appeared to be investigating the case after the fashion of a coroner's jury, poking their pasteboard countenances close to the sculptors with an unchangeable grin, that gave still more ludicrous effect to the comic alarm and sorrow of their gestures. Just then a figure came by, in a grey wig and rusty gown, with an inkhorn at his buttonhole, and a pen behind his ear. He announced himself as a notary, and offered to make the last will and testament of the assassinated man. This solemn duty, however, was interrupted by a surgeon, who brandished a lancet three feet long, and proposed to him to let him take blood. The affair was so like a feverish dream that Kenyon resigned himself to let it take its course. Fortunately, the humors of the carnival passed from one absurdity to another without lingering long enough on any to wear but even the slightest of them. The passiveness of his demeanor afforded too little scope for such broad merriments as the masqueraders sought. In a few moments they vanished from him as dreams and spectres do, leaving him at liberty to pursue his quest, with no impediment except the crowd that blocked up the footway. He had not gone far when the peasant and the contadina met him. They were still hand in hand, and appeared to be straying through the grotesque and animated scene, taking as little part in it as himself. It might be because he recognized them, and knew their solemn secret, that the sculptor fancied a melancholy emotion to be expressed by the very movement and attitudes of these two figures, and even the grasp of their hands, uniting them so closely, seemed to set them in a sad remoteness from the world at which they gazed. "'I rejoice to meet you,' said Kenyon. 
but they looked at him through the eye-holes of their black marks without answering a word pray give me a little light on the matter which i have so much at heart said he if you know anything of hilda for heaven's sake speak still they were silent and the sculptor began to imagine that he must have mistaken the identity of these figures there being such a multitude in similar costume yet there was no other donatello no other miriam he felt too that spiritual certainty which impresses us with the presence of our friends apart from any testimony of the senses you are unkind resumed he knowing the anxiety which oppresses me not to relieve it if in your power the reproach evidently had its effect for the contadina now spoke and it was miriam's voice we gave you all the light we could said she you are yourself unkind though you little think how much so to come between us at this hour there may be a sacred hour even in carnival time in another state of mind kenyon could have been amused by the impulsiveness of this response and a sort of vivacity that he had often noted in miriam's conversation but he was conscious of a profound sadness in her tone overpowering its momentary irritation and assuring him that a pale tear-stained face was hidden behind her mask forgive me said he donatello here extended his hand not that which was clasping miriam's and she too put her free one into the sculptor's left so that they were a linked circle of three with many reminiscences and forebodings flashing through their hearts kenyon knew intuitively that these once familiar friends were parting with him now farewell they all three said in the same breath no sooner was the word spoken than they loosed their hands and the uproar of the carnival swept like a tempestuous sea over the spot which they had included within their small circle of isolated feeling by this interview the sculptor had learned nothing in reference to hilda but he understood that he was to adhere to the instructions already received and await a solution of the mystery in some mode that he could not yet anticipate passing his hands over his eyes and looking about him for the event just described had made the scene even more dreamlike than before he now found himself approaching that broad piazza bordering on the corso which has for its central object the sculpture column of antonius it was not far from this vicinity that miriam had bid him wait struggling onward as fast as the tide of merrymakers setting strong against him would permit he was now beyond the palazzo colonna and began to count the houses the fifth was a palace with a long front upon the corso and of stately height but somewhat grim with age over its arched and pillared entrance there was a balcony richly hung with tapestry and damask and tenanted for the time by a gentleman of venerable aspect and a group of ladies the white hair and whiskers of the former and the winter roses in his cheeks had an english look 
the ladies too showed a fair-haired saxon bloom and seemed to taste the mirth of the carnival with the freshness of spectators to whom the scene was new all the party the old gentleman with grave earnestness as if he were defending a rampart and his young companions with exuberance of frolic showered confetti inexhaustibly upon the passers-by in the rear of the balcony a broad-brimmed ecclesiastical beaver was visible an abbate probably an acquaintance and cicerone of the english family was sitting there and enjoying the scene though partially withdrawn from view as the decorum for his order dictated there seemed no better nor other course for kenyon than to keep watch at this appointed spot waiting for whatever should happen next clasping his arm round a lamp-post to prevent being carried away by the turbulent stream of wayfarers he scrutinized every face with the idea that some one of them might meet his eyes with a glance of intelligence he looked at each mask harlequin ape bulbous-headed monster or anything that was absurdist not knowing but that the messenger might come even in such fantastic geese or perhaps one of those quaint figures in the stately ruff the cloak tunic and trunk hose of three centuries ago might bring him tidings of hilda out of that long past age at times his disquietude took a hopeful aspect and he fancied that hilda might come by her own sweet self in some shy disguise which the instinct of his love would be sure to penetrate or she might be borne past on a triumphal car like the one just now approaching its slow-moving wheels encircled and spoke with foliage and drawn by horses that were harnessed and wreathed with flowers being at best so far beyond the bounds of reasonable conjecture he might anticipate the wildest event or find either his hopes or fears disappointed in what appeared most probable the old englishman and his daughter in the opposite balcony must have seen something unutterably absurd in the sculptor's deportment pouring into this whirlpool of nonsense so earnestly in quest of what was to make his life dark or bright earnest people who try to get a reality out of human existence are necessarily absurd in the view of the revellers and masqueraders at all events after a good deal of mirth at the expense of his melancholy visage the fair occupants of the balcony favoured kenyon with a salvo of confetti which came rattling about him like a hailstorm looking up instinctively he was surprised to see the abbot in the background lean forward and give a courteous sign of recognition it was the same old priest with whom he had seen hilda at the confessional the same with whom he had talked of her disappearance on meeting him in the street yet whatever might be the reason kenyon did not now associate this ecclesiastical personage with the idea of hilda his eyes lighted on the old man just for an instant and then returned to the eddying throng of the corso on his minute scrutiny of which depended for aught he knew the sole chance of ever finding any trace of her 
there was about this moment a bustle on the other side of the street the cause of which kenyon did not see nor exert himself to discover a small party of soldiers or gendarmes appeared to be concerned in it they were perhaps arresting some disorderly character who under the influence of an extra flask of wine might have reeled across the mystic limitation of carnival proprieties the sculptor heard some people near him talking of the incident that contadina in a black mask was a fine figure of a woman she was not a miss replied a female voice but her companion was far the handsomer figure of the two could they be really a peasant and a contadina do you imagine no no said the other it is some frolic of the carnival carried a little too far this conversation might have excited kenyon's interest only that just as the last words were spoken he was hit by two missiles both of a kind that were flying abundantly on that gay battlefield one we are ashamed to say was a cauliflower which flung by a young man from a passing carriage came with a prodigious thump against his shoulder the other was a single rosebud so fresh that it seemed that moment gathered it flew from the opposite balcony smote gently on his lips and fell into his hands he looked upward and beheld the face of his lost hilda she was dressed in a white domino and looked pale and bewildered and yet full of tender joy moreover there was a gleam of delicate mirthfulness in her eyes which the sculptor had seen there only two or three times in the course of their acquaintance but thought it the most bewitching and fairy-like of all hilda's expressions that soft mirthful smile caused her to melt as it were into the wild frolic of the carnival and become not so strange and alien to the scene as her unexpected apparition must otherwise have made her meanwhile the venerable englishman and his daughters were staring at poor hilda in a way that proved them altogether astonished as well as inexpressibly shocked by her sudden intrusion into their private balcony they looked as indeed english people of respectability would if an angel were to alight in their circle without due introduction from somebody whom they knew in the court above they looked as if an unpardonable liberty had been taken and a suitable apology must be made after which the intruder would be expected to withdraw the abbate however drew the old gentleman aside and whispered a few words that served to mollify him he bestowed on hilda a sufficiently benignant though still a perplexed and questioning regard and invited her in dumb show to put herself at her ease but whoever was in fault our shy and gentle hilda had dreamt of no intrusion whence she had come or where she had been hidden during this mysterious interval we can but imperfectly surmise and do not mean at present to make it a matter of formal explanation with the reader it is better perhaps to fancy that she had been snatched away to a land of picture that she had been straying with claude in the golden light which he used to shed over his landscapes but which he could never have beheld with his waking eyes till he awoke in the better clime 
we will imagine that, for the sake of the true simplicity with which she loved them, Hilda had been permitted for a season to converse with the great departed masters of the pencil, and behold the diviner works which they have painted in heavenly colors. Guido had shown her another portrait of Beatrice Sensi, done from the celestial life in which that forlorn mystery of the earthly countenance was exchanged for a radiant joy. Perugino had allowed her a glimpse at his easel, on which she discerned what seemed a woman's face, but so divine by the very depth and softness of its womanhood, that a gush of happy tears blinded the maiden's eyes before she had time to look. Raphael had taken Hilda by the hand, that fine forcible hand which Kenyon sculptured, and drawn aside the curtain of gold-fringed cloud that hung before his latest masterpiece. On earth Raphael painted the transfiguration. What higher scene may he have since depicted? Not from imagination, but as revealed to his actual sight. Neither will we retrace the steps by which she returned to the actual world. For the present, be it enough to say that Hilda had been summoned forth from a secret place, and led we know not through what mysterious passages, to a point where the tumult of life burst suddenly upon her ears. She heard the tramp of footsteps, the rattle of wheels, and the mingled hum of a multitude of voices, with strains of music and loud laughter breaking through. Emerging into a great gloomy hall, a curtain was drawn aside. She found herself gently propelled into an open balcony, whence she looked out upon the festal street, with gay tapestries flaunting over all the palace fronts, the windows thronged with merry faces, and a crowd of maskers rioting upon the pavement below. Immediately she seemed to become a portion of the scene. Her pale, large-eyed, fragile beauty, her wandering aspect and bewildered grace, attracted the gaze of many. And there fell around her a shower of bouquets and bonbons, freshest blossoms and sweetest sugar-plums, sweets to the sweet, such as the revellers of the carnival reserve as tributes to his special loveliness. Hilda pressed her hand across her brow. She let her eyelids fall, and, lifting them again, looked through the grotesque and gorgeous show, the chaos of mad jollity, in quest of some object by which she might assure herself that the whole spectacle was not an illusion. Beneath the balcony she recognized a familiar and fondly remembered face. The spirit of the hour and the scene exercised its influence over her quick and sensitive nature. She caught up one of the rosebuds that had been showered upon her, and aimed it at the sculptor. It hit the mark, he turned his sad eyes upward, and there was Hilda, in whose gentle presence his own secret sorrow and the obtrusive uproar of the carnival alike died away from his perception. That night the lamp beneath the Virgin's shrine burned as brightly as if it had never been extinguished, and though the one faithful dove had gone to her melancholy perch, she greeted Hilda rapturously the next morning, and summoned her less constant companions, whithersoever they had flown, to renew their homage.
End of chapter 49, volume 2, read by Lars Rolander.